Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Well, Zach, how long do you have? You have you have you have an hour or so, you think, or what? What kind of time frame are you you in right now? Is that for me, or well, for Kevin? I, did we oh. have another? Did we have another one after this one today, Zach? I can't remember. Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, I can double check that. I got to look through the schedule with you when we're done here. So that's cool. Yeah, okay. I'm good until I just got a meeting at two thirty. So I'm, oh, well, I, we should. We should. <laughs> I think that's plenty of time. Because you're because it's what noon right there, right? No, it's eleven. I'm Central Time. Oh, it's 11. oh yeah, that's right. You know, my my computer's an hour forward. My my computer thinks I'm on Mountain Time and I'm actually on Pacific. Okay, cool. So, yeah. Um, I guess Zach, we're recording. Kevin, thank you for coming on. Um, give us a quick, just brief history, if you don't mind, and then we can get into some interesting topics. I know you are. Um a dentist and you've got some interesting thoughts on diet and stuff like that. Yeah. So first of all, it's an honor. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So I'm looking forward to chatting. Uh, But yeah, as far as my history, professional and nutrition, it's not necessarily the same, uh, but I've just been, I've been a health and fitness. uh, I, I, I say health and fitness. So it was really mainly geared towards fitness for the first uh, 20 years or so, uh, you know, body composition, muscle building, fat burning. Uh, and then it, it slowly transitioned. We could talk about why that transition happened. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm a dentist. I practice in dental sleep medicine, which is treating sleep disordered breathing, uh, which basically ranges from upper, upper airway resistance syndrome, which is fancy word for snoring through obstructive sleep apnea. I do pediatric dentistry a couple of days a week, and I do a lot of writing and research <laughs> in, in, in between. Do you, for the, I'm sorry, I'm just going to jump into some questions because you said a couple yeah. of things that I was interested in, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about sleep apnea and snoring and some of the maybe root causes, or what do you find is kind of some main drivers of that? So, the, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different causes. The most common cause is being overweight. Uh, being overweight and combined with age. Those two things, you, you get uh, basically the tissue and the throat becomes, the tissue becomes more pliable, more, less, there's less uh, muscle tension and, and, you know, you're more prone to collapsing of the airway. So as a dentist, uh, dentists can get advanced training in dental sleep medicine, which we basically would treat it through oral appliance therapy, uh, which basically splints the mandible in a position that keeps the airway open, kind of similar to if you're taught in CPR to lift the chin to open the airway. It's just a, a custom fit device that holds the jaw in that position throughout the night to keep the airway open. Is there, is there anything to do with, and the reason I asked this, I was actually talking to Dr. Anthony J yesterday and we were just 
kind of got onto the topic of uh, breathing in general and like whether specifically to running, but like I think in general, this is maybe has some application is to be like a nasal breather versus a mouth breather. Is there anything like, is there a lot of sleep apnea things that are related to folks who just have like congestion in their nostrils or some other weird like nasal breathing issues that cause that snoring or that sort of a situation? Yeah, that, that's a huge thing. So nasal breathing uh, is what you want to be doing when you're, when you're sleeping. And if you are congested or if you have some anatomical issues, a deviated septum, et cetera, that predispose you to mouth breathing, uh, that can also predispose you to apnea, sleep disorder breathing. Uh, so yeah, that's super important. And one thing I do come across, most people are nasal breathers when they sleep. They might say, uh, I think my mouth breather, but something like 98% of the population it are, they're, they're nasal breathers. You might go to sleep breathing out of your mouth, but most people transition to nasal breathing unless they have some underlying issues. So it, it is related to apnea, uh, but sometimes not the, the root cause. Yeah, you know, I've seen some interesting stuff on the sleep apnea, you know, it's particularly some people getting some success with the dental appliances. But as you know, um, it's better to probably just get away with uh, the, the actual etiology, what's causing it. And obviously, obesity is being the largest one. And that's certainly, yeah. certainly true. There's some people that have, quote, unquote, central apnea where, you know, obesity may not be related. I'm not right. sure if, if we see a different treatment being efficacious for those people. I've actually seen some people with that situation where they were not obese, you know, had had the, the, the sort of central sleep apnea pattern and they improved through through lifestyle. So I think that also is interesting. So it kind it's, of tells us there's I think the research now is seventy percent of people that are obese have sleep apnea or at least some degree of sleep disordered breathing, which is, you know, that's quite substantial. <laughs> I mean, I was undiagnosed, but I'm sure I had it at some point back when I was in my early 40s when I was, you know, pushing, you know, 280, 290 pounds and I was snoring constantly and sleepy during the day. I mean, it was just clear, but I, you know, I, I had everything but the diagnosis or something. And you're a big guy. And usually, I mean, one of the things, risk factors you look for is like a big guy with a big neck, like big muscle, muscular physique predisposes someone to apnea. Yeah, I've got none of that now. I mean, none of it at all. I mean, I sleep like a rock and I don't make a peep, which is kind of nice. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's better for my partner. <laughs> my girlfriend appreciates it and so do I because I sleep well. So that's good. Yep. What I heard is what I heard is Sean is a, is a big mouth breather is what you're telling us, right? Well, it could be. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about dental health in general because, I mean, there's a lot of evidence out there that, you know, the kind of mouth is kind of the – or the dental health kind of is predictive of a lot of things. You know, we see we see cardiovascular disease being associated with dental health. We see probably a lot of other things. You probably have better neurological disease. Talk about that. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about the importance of, of dental health, not just because your teeth don't fall, but what does it mean for the rest of your body when you're when you have good dental health or bad dental health? Yeah, you know what I think is interesting is so dentists have a unique. Uh, I'll just call it advantage that some other healthcare professionals don't have is that, you know, we can look at the mouth with the naked eye and we could, we could see pathology. Like you can see teeth decaying and like teeth are, they're covered in enamel. This is like, this is the hardest substance in your body. And you can see pathology eating through that substance. And we know it requires sugar and carbohydrate in order for that, that process to happen. Uh, and we, we can also see inflammation. So with periodontal disease, the inflammation of the gums. We can we can see that with the naked eye, and we know that diet plays probably the most significant role in this process. Uh, 
But we also know that if you have good oral hygiene, we you can you can prevent some of that uh, some some of these processes even if you have even if you're eating a sugar a high sugar diet and a high carb diet. Uh, but what I think is interesting is we know that, but once that sugar or carbohydrate gets past the mouth, it's almost like oh we assume it's fine then uh, once it gets into the body. And if you think about it, it's like what is what's your oral hygiene of your of your body? You know, some people might say oh it's fiber that's going to just you know keep everything nice and clean or I think the best analogy would be uh, exercise or working out would be the oral hygiene. But even then, trying to oral hygiene out a bad diet uh, is not always the most successful way to go about it, <laughs> if that analogy makes sense. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's very indicative of systemic health. And I think uh, I, I read a good amount of research, and one thing with researching and humans is this healthy user bias that's pretty much evident, you know, it's pervasive through all of it. And I think we see some of that with the dental systemic health uh, because, you know, someone that eats more sugar is probably uh, that it doesn't take care. Someone that's brushing their teeth and taking meticulous care of their mouth, they're more likely to be the kind of person that exercises and probably doesn't eat as much sugar. Uh, but I think there's still this, this oral systemic connection that is uh, very clear. Yeah, you know, I think the first time I got kind of interested in that topic was uh, looking at the Weston Price Foundation, and you know, they've offered a lot outside of just dentistry, but that's kind of where their roots were, and and it is kind of an interesting just thought process to go through when you think of like how much dentistry work the average human has before they even turn eighteen, and it's just like you you don't have to really be too conspiratorial to realize like well that just wasn't an option if we go back a few hundred years in terms of like real legitimate dentistry. So we're doing something differently. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's kind of, a, it's just kind of a sad cultural thing. So I do pediatric dentistry a couple of days a week and I'm taking out teeth left and right all day long. And that has become a, like a normal thing. It's like, Oh, you just got to get some baby teeth pulled out. Like, yeah, the baby teeth are supposed to fall out on their own when the, when the permanent tooth is coming through. Uh, but getting baby teeth chucked because of decay is like, that's not a normal thing. Uh, it, like just think if someone had to get, you know, Oh, we're just going to take your arm off because the bones rotten out. Like that obviously we've just normalized some pathologies, uh, like decay, uh, which I, which I think is kind of a tragedy because if we saw for what it is, it's like, look, your diet is the number one thing that's, that's contributing to this or poor oral hygiene, uh, as well. But, you know, one thing that you see in dentistry is people can get away with poor oral hygiene if, if the diet is, is right. Now, usually if the diet is wrong, it's those two things tend to go hand in hand. Someone that has good, you know, diet usually has good oral hygiene and vice versa. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I was, you know, I remember Wednesdays in the operating room, whenever I would operate, you know, I'd be doing my knee scopes, shoulder scopes, knee replacements, whatever. And there was, that was the same day that the dental guys would be ripping teeth out of the kids. I mean, a dental extraction day, maybe full mouth extractions, you know, yeah. six, seven, eight kids a day. And you go in the recovery room and all these kids are just screaming because their teeth is all pulled out. And it was just, you know, as they wake up from the anesthetic. And so it was just, it was just amazing. And it was regular. It was no shortage. And the hospital said, yeah, it's actually a pretty good moneymaker for us because, we have so many kids where their parents stick them in the bot in the bed with a glass of juice, got yeah. even a Coke or something like that. And they're, they're going to sleep with a sippy cup full of 
sugary whatever and exactly on out. I mean, it's just it's just amazing that that that, that happened, and it's. You know, and I think it's unfortunately overrepresented in some of the some of the poor populations where that's a common practice. You know, where I lived in New Mexico at the time, there was just it was it was like the, the Hispanic population, the Indian population. It was just that's what we would see by and large. I mean, yep. it was and it was just again, I think it was another issue with what people that are struggling to to make ends meet have to have to rely on for their calories, and that's what that's the problem of cheap calories. I mean, we have this belief that we're going to feed everybody cheap calories, but that comes with a, a, a significant, serious individual health consequence when you're, when you're feeding people, you know, just as many calories as you can. And that's, and again, this goes to crops. Sugar is the most economical crop you can grow per calorie. I mean, that is the way you feed people calories is putting them on sugar. And then, then beyond that, it becomes what we typically eat is the, the corn, wheat, the rice, soybeans, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I think the four staple foods of the world are wheat, corn, rice, and sugar. Like that's that's the that's what feeds the world. Which is, you know, I wouldn't touch any of those things. <laughs> but uh, uh, but that but that that's the reality of the situation. Which we you know, like, if, if that's your diet and you're not taking care of your oral health, you know, we know we're going to see decay. But I think that's just you know the first stop, you know, into the body. And, that, and I think that you know that's why we see the the chronic, you know, diseases of modern civilization that we do today because we're just eating a diet so uh, discordant with our design that, you know, that, that's what you get. <laughs> Is this something that, I mean, all dentists know? I mean, because when, when I when I would go to the dentist, and I'll, and I'll truth in fact, I've been a dentist about three or four years, so I just freaking don't have a need to, quite honestly, sorry. Yeah. But, um, you know, it was, I was never, ever once did anyone ever discuss diet with me as a dentist. I mean, and you know, and then I was, you know, when I was going, you know, every six months, get my teeth cleaned and they were saying, yeah, you got some gum recession, you know, maybe we can do a gum transplant, that type of, you know, type of stuff. Um, I, I, there was no one ever suggested diet to me. And then when I went on a ketogenic diet, the, the hygienist remarked, wow, your gums are really looking a lot better. And now it's like, you know, all the a little bit of sensitivity I had, the cold and hot sensitivity that I had, I could feel like the the, the inflammation to go. That's all gone completely. I mean, I don't even my teeth are like I don't even think about it. You think about it, humans are the only creature on the planet that once you lose your teeth, we can still live because we got the prosthetics and the you know the replacements. But any animal in the wild loses its teeth, I mean, that's game over. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're in trouble. You're done. And so, um, why is it that more dentists are not in there saying, "Look, change your diet," or at least that's been my experience and maybe maybe it's just my example my representative yeah example but do you find that most dentists don't preach a uh, diet to most of their patients well so one of the things is you you might have been what's called low caries risk meaning like you, you're not a high risk of, of having a bunch of decay in your mouth because you're take, taking care of your teeth you're eating a healthy diet etc uh in that case it probably makes sense that they're not going to counsel you too much uh with someone with rampant decay like that 100% has to be a discussion point. And so, I, I mean, with all the kids and their parents, like that, I'm always talking about that. I think probably some of it is, and I'm, and you know, as a healthcare provider where it's like, you're going to tell someone to, you know, change their diet. If they're not proactively wanting to do that, it's almost like, you know, you're saying it to say it, but like someone really has to uh, want to make a big diet change if they're going to say, okay, stop eating sugar. Because uh, general public is gonna be like, okay, yeah, right. <laughs> so I think I think a lot of hygienists and dentists focus more on the oral hygiene aspect of it, saying like, look, if this is what your diet's gonna be, you need to be brushing twice a day, you need to be flossing every night. 
Uh, but that said, it, dentists are trained to talk about sugar, carbohydrates, and you know how the decay process works, educate the patients uh, so that they can make better nutritional uh, decisions. Uh, whether all dentists are doing that, I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I wonder how much too, like I can just try to envision myself as being a dentist and having like the average person come in and clearly there being a dietary relationship with their tooth decay or whatever issue they were dealing with. And then I decide to try to educate them on nutrition. I, I would think that there's a fair percentage, if not the majority that would basically just gloss over as soon as you start telling them that. Do you think like that's, is that kind of something that's, more or less uh, kind of an uphill battle for dentists or where they just re they just kind of get to this position where they're like, okay, this person or this specific person is not going to take my advice. Therefore, I need to move into the next best successful thing, which would be the dental hygiene, brushing twice a day, flossing and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that's exactly what we probably see. I don't think that's a good reason for dentists not to harp on it every single time. Like if I see a patient, in six months and we're doing fillings and I see them in six months, we're doing fillings again. Uh, like I'm talking about oral hygiene, not just oral hygiene, I'm talking about diet because we know that's the root cause. And so <laughs> just to ignore that just because they're not going to take action on it, uh, you know, I'm always like, look, I'm going to do my part of it. I'm, I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain and tell you what I think you should be doing. Uh, whether they decide to hold up their end of the bargain, you know, it's a free world. They can, they can decide what they want to decide. Uh, but I, I guess that's my view on it. <laughs> sure. No, and I think that's, I think that's, uh, it is great that you have that view. And I, I mean, I just can see like kind of that kind of, uh, reoccurring situation happening with some, some, some folks and then just kind of almost losing passion and kind of beating that drum over and over again. But it's good to know that there are folks out there that are willing to do that. Cause I think ultimately that's gotta be kind of at the forefront, like you said, and, um, you know, one other kind of topic about teeth that I'm interested in that I've been curious about, and I'm sure part of my like unknowing in this topic is just me not doing enough research, but what's the deal with wisdom teeth? Because <laughs> like when I think of that, I'm like, okay, like there has to be a reason for those. What is the reason for them and why are we yanking them out? Well, I mean, you bring up a great point. So humans far as I know, we are the only primates that our teeth don't fit in, all our teeth don't fit into our heads. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a lot of theories on why this is. Uh, I think, I think the biggest one is like our, our mandibles are not as big as they should be. And part of this is from developmental, uh, developmental issues. Uh, so th the reason we have our third molars, those wisdom teeth is so that they're supposed to come into our mouths and, and we use them to, to eat. Uh, but the situation is a lot of people today, they're, they, they don't have the space in their mouth in order to accommodate these teeth. So they get impacted. We got to, we got to take them out. Uh, cause I mean, they can cause issues. Sometimes they don't cause issues. There's no room for them. They don't come in and it's no issue. Uh, sometimes they start coming in at, at weird angles, so to speak, just because there's not room for them to come in at their normal angle. Uh, and, and this, this impaction can cause issues, cause pain. So, you know, that's why uh, the oral surgeons are so well employed <laughs> uh, because people are they're getting these teeth yanked. And it's the same thing about uh, orthodontics. You know, orthodontics is, and all these crooked teeth, uh, I mean, if you go back through history, we, we're seeing worse and worse uh, as far as uh, orthodontics is concerned and, and, to, and, to, and tooth alignment. 
Uh, and it all has to come, it all comes down to, uh, uh, you know, developmental issues, which I think, you know, are there, there's definitely, I, I would argue diet reasons for that. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. Cause wisdom, you know, you, you talk about wisdom teeth and not having enough room in the jaw, uh, for the teeth to come in. And, and why is that? I mean, what, what would be the point of having those teeth? I mean, my, 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 my wisdom teeth never came in and, you know, I was always, you know, the belief that the human, human evolution is going towards a smaller and smaller jaw, which there's some evidence that may support that. And, and, and maybe that's the case, but it's also, we look at guys like Weston A. Price, they find that people that have a sort of a soft diet, so to speak, like a soft modern Western diet, don't stimulate the jaw growth. So what's, what's, what's really going on there with why, why are we, what is it, what is going on dietary wise that, that potentially is causing, you know, malalignment of the teeth or not enough room in our jaw for wisdom teeth? I think it's probably, my guess is probably multifactorial. Like I know as a kid, my diet was not, it was a standard American. I was a fat kid and you know, we're doing all, you know, that's when we're growing. That's when your brain's growing. And I always say, it's like, I, I wish I would have known what, you know, what I, my parents would have known what I know and you know, would have fed me appropriately. Uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with if you're not getting the, we also know, like we can look at height, like, like the American, Native American Indians, you know, they were known for being, everyone was six feet tall. And now the average, you know, male is, I don't know, five, eight, five, nine, something like that. Uh, and so we're shrinking in a lot of ways. Uh, the brain is shrinking. So uh, I, I think there's, there's nutritional aspect to this. Uh, what exactly is it? You know, it's it's hard to say. It's if, if you're if you're malnourished, and you know, it makes sense things aren't gonna, you know, grow as robust as as they would with a more nutritionally complete diet. Yeah, the the brain shrinkage thing is interesting to me, and I hadn't really looked into that much until Sean had mentioned it on some of the other podcasts we've done. And what well, if you can you remind me again, like what was our brain capacity at its peak versus what it is now? It was like 1500 CC, uh, I think at its peak. And I, I, I'm not sure what it is now. Is it, is it roughly around 1250? I would say something like that. Sean, you probably know better yeah, than I do. Like 1200, 1300 varies. Yeah. Men, men tend to have a slightly larger brain capacity than females. And then it, 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 it varies between different, uh, races, I suppose, you know, we see some of the Asian populations have the highest, you know, slightly more brain material than, than, than some other population. I did not get into a racist argument. But that's just what the, you know, anthropologic evidence we have on this stuff. And, you know, there's some thought, you know, it may be, you know, it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, we knew that Neanderthal had a larger brain than Homo sapien. We know that we've kind of interbred with Neanderthal. And so the populations that have a higher percentage of Neanderthal also have a slightly larger brain. And that would be the Asian population, which is kind of interesting just from a purely, you know, evolutionary anthropologic standpoint, not to, not to impart any intelligence uh, sort of data to that. But, yeah, we do see that, uh, you know, modern Homo sapien probably peaked in brain capacity somewhere around 100,000 years ago, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe up until about 50,000 years ago with like Cro-Magnon, you know, in, in early, uh, you know, Ice Age Europe's. So that's, that, that was kind of our, our peak as a species. And then we've gone down, you know, a couple hundred cc's since certainly with the uh, adoption of agriculture. So it's pretty interesting. And, and some of the people out there will say, well, we're, we're, we've accomplished more as humans. We're therefore smarter. Uh, maybe there's more neuralization or different neuron capacity, but I don't think that's the case. I think we just probably lost 
some capacity and probably because of our lifestyle. You know, we, 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 lo- we lost the requirements for some of those other functions, you know, whereas before, you know, it's very difficult to survive when you've got to rely on, you know, rely on living in the wilderness. You know, it takes more intelligence to actually survive and thrive in that situation than it does in a sort of modern world. And certainly today where all I got to do is press a no phone number and I can feed myself and, you know, whatever. So it's not, it's not, it's, it's not like we require more to. And the population numbers are drastically different as well. Like we have 7 billion people, you get one genius out of 7 billion, that percentage versus, you know, right. Much right. smaller human populations. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Kevin, let's talk a little bit about, uh, yeah, there's a couple of, there's several topics in there that I want to talk about just because, um, you know, I don't get to talk to Dennis very often. So one of them is controversial talk, but it's fluoride. There's a lot of people that are sort of anti-fluoride out there. Uh, there are people that would say, and, and, and I, I, I certainly can sympathize with that because I think that humans didn't have a particularly good dental hygiene routine. I mean, we didn't have toothbrushes and flosses and fluoride treatments even a hundred years, you know, not a hundred years ago. Pretty recent. Yeah. Pretty recent history. So, I mean, what is the deal with that is, is, it, you know, like I said, let's say we're on a quote unquote species appropriate diet, which you and I would both argue is probably a meat dominant diet with yes. maybe occasional, you know, fruits and, you know, you know, some nuts and tubers occasionally supplement that. But if we're generally eating a species appropriate diet and our teeth are generally good, as would be indicated by the anthropologic record, then what is the, what is the need in that situation, assuming we're doing that for all these extra, you know, dental sort of procedures or dental dental strategies? Yeah, I was actually just recently talking about this because I, I bought a Berkey. And one of the reasons why I wanted to filter the fluoride out. Now, this is controversial because fluoridating the water is considered one of the most successful public health efforts in history. Uh, and it does help prevent uh decay especially in the child population where they're eating cheap high sugar diets they don't have access to good uh you know maybe maybe they don't have the best oral hygiene practice but they also don't have access to to dental services like a dentist or a hygienist uh and it, so in that realm it has been very successful in helping prevent or limit decay not that we don't not that it's like a cure-all but it does help uh from a cavities just looking at you know dental decay uh, but there's a good amount of research that has looked into uh, potential neurological issues and such, uh, and there's nothing conclusive. And I, I think the reason why is, you know, combining, uh, you know, this relatively, relatively new, we don't have a lot of long-term trials. So a lot of things are just hypothesis with, uh, with, with human in, in human studies. Uh, but in my point of view is, I think you probably know if you're eating a species, uh, human, you know, a species appropriate diet, it's going to be low carb because before the agricultural revolution, we know like, even if you're on the upper end of carbs, it would be like 30% of your daily calories. So more likely far less than that. Uh, and sugar consumption, you know, even less than that. So the, as far as like, if you're eating a meat based diet and you're, you have some, decent oral hygiene practices. Uh, do you need fluoride supplementation? Do you need fluoride in the water? I would say, you know, absolutely not. Uh, I think at that point you assess the risk benefit analysis and you're like, well, the risk of me like getting cavities is pretty small. Uh, the risk of having some neurological issue with it is it's there. I don't know, you know, where on the risk scale is that? I don't know. I couldn't tell you, but 
you know, if you don't have any risk of decay, then might as well just say, you know, get rid of it. Uh, so I got a Berkey water filter for other things as well, but fluoride was one of the reasons. That's interesting. So as a dentist, you're, you're, you're filtering out the fluoride, so that'll probably <laughs> exactly. raise your eyebrows and might even raise some eyebrows of your colleagues. But, um, you know, and, and, I, and I agree. I mean, I think it's like I said, we, we have a lot of solutions for problems that we've caused ourselves, And so we, and then the solution is, do you need that solution when you're no longer causing the problem? And I think that's, that's, it's the sort of thing. It's kind of like that's, this. That's exactly right. That's like the story like, of medicine. Right. It is. It's like people take anti-inflammatories for their sore knees. And I'm like, well, if you ask your doctor, why do you have inflammation in the first place? That may be a better place to look rather than say, here's a pill to treat your inflammation because you know, it comes with side effects as we're, we're well aware of. And I certainly, as I got farther in my career, realized that, there's a lot of problems that are, that are associated with these, you know, the handing out osteolan inflammatories like candy, which, which, which I certainly did. I mean, I couldn't pay on the ibuprofen, Celebrex, you know, Mobic prescriptions I'd written, and even Vioxx prescriptions in the day before I got banned. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, this is something that I've seen, because you, you pursue a carnivorous diet like I do, and you're promoted to that, proponent of that, and I know you've got, I think it's meat, meathealth.com if I'm not mistaken. Is it's just, yeah, just meat.health. Oh, meat.health, okay. Yeah, and so, uh, and you've been, you know, and, and you and I share a fairly similar philosophy on that with a little bit, you know, because we're both kind of muscle guys, I suppose. And, and so there's there's a little difference in the way I think you need to approach that. But one of the things that I have seen um, personally and anecdotally is some people will notice that when they go on a, on a carnivorous diet, they'll notice they'll develop a little bit of calculus or tar tartar behind the teeth, particularly the, the bottom lower teeth. Uh, I know there is maybe some uh, thought that there's different types of plaque or calculus or whatever, whatever the fish tartar or whatever the official word you want to use. It's some yeah. may be more problematic than others. Yeah. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Have you seen that or have anybody contacted you about that particular issue? Well, yeah, actually. And so I talked with uh, Dr. Paul Saladino a couple weeks ago, and he brought it up because when he started, he had some calculus buildup. And calculus tartar, same thing, on, on the lower lower mandibular teeth, but the bottom teeth in the front. Uh, and, I mean, there's a couple of, couple of reasons. Uh, one is, when my experience when talking with a lot of people, uh, this is a common thing in the, during transition. And I think we, we could talk about transition. I've talked a lot about like transitioning the carnival diet because as you know there's people experience a lot of things and it's not always just a you know a walk in the park and everything's glorious right away uh there's usually a couple of hurdles to get through initially uh and one of those is people experiencing dry mouth uh with a with a large fluid rebalancing going on and dry mouth you got your salivary duct glands right here and you got minerals and you got dry mouth and it basically creates an environment where you can have where you can get build up initially uh, a good question is, what's the risk of that buildup? As a dentist, we're trained to like, look, you don't want buildup. You want to get that off and cause inflammation. And that inflammation can lead to periodontal disease. This is, it's basically a path you don't want to take. Uh, I can tell you I've seen a lot of patients that had a lot of buildup and they didn't have periodontal disease and it wasn't an issue. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not promoting that. If you have buildup, I would still, personally, I would like to see a dentist. I'd get taken off, see a hygienist. Uh, is it problematic? Maybe, maybe not. And I think, you know, it could be one of the situations where if you do have an inflammatory process going on and then you throw dry mouth on top of it, you know, it can make things worse. Uh, that's kind of my view on it. For most people, I think it has been more of an issue with transitioning. 
And once they get transitioned, is it still a problem? And, you know, I'm still waiting to hear from people. I know personally, like I, I'm not having any issue with buildup and you know, I've been doing this for quite some time. Are you still getting some buildup? You know, not, not much, you know, a little bit from time to time, but I find that yeah. it very easily comes off. You know, I can easily just grab my finger and go pull yeah. it right off. So it's not like it's, it's rigidly adherent. And so, um, and I've, I've got no gum issues whatsoever. You yeah. know, that it's, it's like, you know, like before, you know, I had this sort of receding gums, the sensitive gums, you know, the, the, the temperature sensitivity in the, in the gum area, you could feel like, you could almost feel like, you know, if you, if you, if you sucked in air hard enough, you, you could feel the exposed nerve endings you know by the roots and stuff and that, yeah. none of that. i mean none of that yeah. stuff on at all um let's switch gears a little bit and talk about something that 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 is another issue because a lot of people that are adopting plant-based diets seem to have dental issues i mean there's some literature that supports that have you encountered that much in your practice as far as people having issues with either gum gum issues teeth issues cavity cavity issues or um you know, I've seen people talk about mineralization problems with their teeth. Have you seen that being associated with that particular type of diet? I see what you're saying. Uh, well, I, the fact of the matter is 99% of the patients I see are on a plant-based diet. They may, they may not call it that, uh, but the majority of their calories are coming from plant-based foods. It might not be a whole plant-based food diet, but it's coming from flowers and, you know, the things we talked about. Grains, sugars, vegetable oils. That's basically what their diet's made up of. So, you know, most people I see, the, very few of the patients I see are on meat-based diets, like real meat-based, low-carb diets. And so it's hard to make that comparison. Uh, but, but as far as, like, the demineralization, like, that's the that's beginning part of the decay process. And I, I see lots of that. <laughs> so I think, I think that, uh, uh, you know, what would be interesting is if we get a practice set up for just you know, meat-based eaters and a practice set up for more standard American plant-based diets and, you know, compare the two environments. The, the fact of the matter is the amount of patients we see in this, in this category over here right now is still quite small. Uh, whereas, you know, the plant-based diets is quite large. So there, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, bias because I see the decay and I see the patient's you know, most patients are on a plant-based diet, so that correlation is pretty easy to make. The, the other category, I don't see very much. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, and most of us don't realize, you know, when we talk about standard American diet, it, it, it is a plant-based diet. I mean, 70% of the calories yeah, are exactly. plants. And only a small, you know, maybe, you know, like I said, if you exclude dairy from the diet, then, then you know, probably something like 10, 15% of your calories come from, from actual meat. Exactly. Is, we're, we're very much on a plant-based diet. It should be the exact opposite, but it's, yeah, we're, 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 we're flipped upside down. Yeah. And, and like I said, I think if you, if you would look at what maybe we'd argue that if you, if you turn it the other way, where 70% of your calories come from meat, you probably would see a tremendous improvement, you know, assuming that those, those other 30% aren't just pure sugar and junk food. I mean, it's, it, it's, exactly. a, it's probably a very good strategy overall. Um, what is, uh, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, because how long have you been doing this carnivore thing, Kevin? I know it's been, you know, a, a year plus, two years, something like that. Where are you at? Yeah, I recently just wrote uh, up on my uh, a post on, you know, my, kind of my journey thus far. It's been about two and a half years, and I've done various forms of the carnivore diet within those two and a half years. Uh, so I, basically, I, and it, 
for some background, I started 2016. I was doing a ketogenic diet. Uh, and I had done ketogenic diets and before that, and I had always, I said, I cheated on the ketogenic diets. I would cheat on them with protein because from a body composition standpoint, uh, to me, going below one gram per pound of protein was, I, I knew that was not an optical, optimal situation for my goals, uh, muscle building and fat loss goals. Uh, but in 2016, I decided to go what I would call full keto uh, to really get deeper levels of nutritional ketosis. So I limited protein to a degree and I lost a ton of muscle. Uh, and not only that, I didn't find, I didn't find the, the, I was doing it for the mental benefits of it. And I didn't necessarily find the mental benefits with it, which eventually led me into, uh, I started researching plants and eliminating plant-based foods one by another. Uh, and I wrote about that, that research, the health dangers of a plant-based diet. I wrote a little ebook that you just people can grab for free online. Uh, but I started eliminating plants, and before I knew it, I was just eating meat. Uh, and I did I did basically a three-month transition. I did six months of just beef and water, uh, just beef and muscle meat, muscle meat and water, which is uh, now, you know, in some areas is a little taboo. They'd say, you know, I was missing a lot of nutrients, but I felt phenomenal during that time. Uh, then I started testing in other meat-based foods, for three months, and then I did six months of like a nose to tail, uh, and then I did a six months of what I would call like a muscle building focus with carnivore diet. Then this summer I did a three, it was actually less than three months, but I, I got to my fat loss goals and I, I gave myself three months and I did it in like six weeks. Uh, but so I, I've used the carnivore diet in various ways uh, to experiment, you know, what what might be, what makes me feel the best basically, and. You know, what I found, I think, Sean, I think it's similar to what you found is, you know, I felt great on just muscle meat and water. Uh, I threw in some organs and they were great. Nothing, no, no, no bad consequences, but I didn't feel that I only noticed one thing with the nose to tail. And that's when I would eat liver. I'd have a greater uh, amount of satiety uh, with less food. Uh, but besides that, you know, I felt good. And, and a lot of people ask me questions. I, I think most of the questions I get around the carnivore diet are for body composition reasons. They want to know, can I build muscle on this? How do I do it? How do I lose fat? You know, because we see different results. People start on the carnivore diet. Some people gain weight initially. And if they don't have the right expectations in mind, like that they're going to be disappointed or they need, so they need the right plan. So that's what I've talked a lot about. So I just did those experiments for myself to just kind of show people, you know, Hey, this is what I would do. So it's been two and a half years or so. That's a long answer to, to, to the question. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And, I, and I'm kind of uh, similar in that, you know, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm just a little bit more than two and a half years. So I'm, I'll be three years, at the end, you know, in about three months. And so three, four months, yeah, three, four months, I'll be three years in. So about the same time from it. And, and that's what I found too. I mean, I, like I said, I know there's a lot of criticism out there that you're not eating every single eyeball and brain and, kidney and I, and I just I just haven't found it to be necessary and in fact I just took a survey of 11,000 people that are that are doing some form of a carnivore diet and about 15% of them are regularly eating organs and you know there's a few that eat it occasionally but the vast majority of people are not doing that and we're seeing good outcomes you know yeah. basically across the board and so I, I do think it's as simple as just get, get get enough meat in the diet and things work pretty well and it's it's kind of one of those I always ask people to tell me what nutrient is not found 
you know, in, in a functioning, you know, muscle cell, because, you know, if, if you say, well, the liver's high in vitamin A, well, are you saying that your, your, your muscles use no vitamin A whatsoever? And if the answer is, well, yes, they do use vitamin A, then I said, well, then it's there. It has to be. And the amount is basically going to be adequate amount. And I, and I often say it's appetite that direct directs you to the adequate amount. Because I think we do, the reason we have an appetite is to get nutrition. And if we're not getting enough nutrition, then we're hungry. And, and one of the problems is people on the standard American plant-based junk food diet are always friggin' hungry because they're never getting nutrition. And that may be why, like you said, when you ate liver, you had a higher amount of nutrition, your appetite waned a little bit, which is yeah. fine. I mean, that's, that's certainly, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with eating it. But uh, I think at the end of the day, your appetite will direct, you know, some people say, well, you might eat more calories than you otherwise would in muscle meat. But I think it depends on who you are, like guys like myself and you that are focused on, you know, wanting to maintain and put on lean muscle match, which I think is tremendously important as we get older. I mean, hanging on to every single molecule of muscle you have is an incredibly important task, then I think, you know, getting, you know, enough food to do it is, is important. Yeah. And, and I think what's interesting, because I agree hundred percent and where I think that appetite is what I find really interesting. And it's really from a body composition standpoint, because I still have very much uh, in that, you know, I, I like to optimize for it. Uh, and as weird as I think I am, there's a lot of people like that, that, you know, it, and it's fine. Maybe it's vanity or whatnot, but who cares? If you want to look good, you want to look good. Uh, but when it comes to macronutrients, there's a lot of interesting discussion around, you know, what's ideal because I, I know if I stick more to ketogenic ratios, which would be 70% fat, 30% protein, my body composition won't be as I would like it as, as much as if I eat a higher fat. So I eat higher protein than most carnivores. Uh, do I'm probably closer 60 40 50 days with 50 50 uh, and one thing I do know is I can gauge people worry about eating too lean and one thing that maybe it's just you, you get intuition over time but it's like I know if I eat too lean you uh, I'll feel hungry for fat and it's like it's hard to explain but it's like okay you just eat a little bit more fat in your next meal and, and all as well uh, but people worry so much about rabbit starvation and, and things like that I'm I think a lot of these worries are unfounded I'm like look, it's not, you know, so. Yeah, it seems to me like if you are going to find yourself in a situation where you're eating too lean long enough to have health consequences, you have been slapping down hunger signals for quite a while <laughs> at that point. Like, I mean, I just, I, I, I don't think I've ever eaten nearly lean enough to, to get into a situation even close to something like that. But I'll tell you, like, even when I'm following a really strict keto style diet. And you know, one of the big calling cards of the keto diet is like, you don't get hunger pangs, so you can really control the amount of food you take in a lot easier. And, and I think, I think that's like more or less accurate. And I certainly can tell you that when my carbs are at their highest, it's, I, I do get hungrier quicker than yeah. I do when I'm following a strict keto diet. But even when I'm doing a strict keto diet, if I'm doing enough workouts and enough like volume of training, you know, I'll get a hunger signal when I'm actually hungry. And it's like you said, that's when you start to crave the fattier cuts of meat and stuff. You know, you start getting a hankering for like salty bacon versus, you know, a more lean cut of meat or something like that. Yeah. And I know if I just, if I just eat fatty meat and or versus lean meat just to appetite, I'll eat more fat. Like my, I'll, I'll gain more fat because yeah, I'll eat more with the, with the fat. Uh, at least from a caloric standpoint than with the lean meat. 
Uh, I think this, I, it's interesting, I'd like to do more research in this area, but I think this might be one of the few things that are slightly gender specific, and it might just be with people's goals, but I find women tend to do better with higher fat to protein for their, for most, I'm going to overgeneralize here, but for a lot of women's body composition goals, they do real well with, with fattier ketogenic alcohol ratios. And I think men, and I'm going to overgeneralize again, but with their, you know, body composition goals, uh, tend to do better when they eat a little bit leaner. Uh, that's very general. It's what I found, you know, talking with, with a whole lot of people. And it's what I found true with myself, but, uh, it's just, I mean, something that I think is interesting. And, and for people, I think it's worth experimenting because I've gone the very fat, fatty ketogenic ratios and I've gone very, very lean. And if people are worried about going lean, there's probably, I've, if, I've tested the limits of eating just protein, like very, very lean for a long period of time. Uh, and I haven't died yet, uh, but I, I pushed those limits quite far. Uh, and so I know people worry about eating too much protein and I, I don't think for most people that's, that's a, should be a top of mind issue. Yeah, that's actually an interesting topic. And, you know, we had a guest on not too long ago, Dr. Stacy Sims, and, and she doesn't necessarily see eye to eye with us with the overall kind of keto carnivore style of, of nutrition, but she's very well versed in the differences between men and women, nutritionally speaking. And one thing she mentioned I thought was really interesting is we were talking about just uh, you know, dieting or weight loss in general in men versus women and just the way your body responds to the presence of low energy intake. And like she said, like a lot of the men, they can sometimes go like, you know, upwards to nine months without their body kind of rebelling hormonally. Whereas yeah. the women might have a, a hormonal like rebellion within like four days or something like that. So that window of time is, seems to be pretty drastic between men and women when it comes to that. So maybe that's got something to do with the more classical ketogenic approach working well for women because they're not sending their body that signal of like, you know, there's a higher ratio of non-energy based food, I guess is what you maybe consider protein versus energy based food that you consider fat at. That's super interesting. Uh, because I've, I've done, I've done a lot of diet strategies over the last two decades. And one of the things that I would do would, would be carb cycling for that very reason. Uh, and now, you know, I think I, when I did this last fat loss cycle, I, I explained it and I got some videos of people want to dive more into it, but I said, I did, I didn't do carb cycling. I did fat cycling, uh, basically I would have every three or four days, I'd have a higher fat, more ketogenic ratio day. And then I would have three, three or four days where I would go back to my, my high protein, I'll call it moderate, medium fat levels. Uh, and I do that mainly for the reason that you just talked about was the body will, I, and whether men are fat, fast or slower adapters to this metabolic decrease. But like, we know if you drop calories, like your metabolism is following, how long does it take to catch up to that? Uh, you know, it's probably a matter of, you know, individual difference, but that's something so for someone that wants to get extreme fat loss or, you know, with long, with, with body composition goals, that it's very important to have in mind that that metabolic drop is something that's fighting against you. Uh, and, you know, taming that in various ways is super important. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the back to the rabbit starvation thing, I think 
the rabbit starvation occurred because people had no other option and choice and they were only allowed to eat lean meat because that's all they had. And that's why they got right. the rabbit starvation. You know, the modern situation where I can go to the grocery store <laughs> exactly. and buy the type of meat I need, it doesn't put you in rabbit starvation. So you can certainly eat lean for a while. And then, like you said, at some point, your, your body's going to say, hey, man. Yeah, you don't feel good. Fat. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's about getting adequate fat. I think one of the problem is, you know, we realize that fat is essential. Fat is good for us. We need fat. We don't have to gorge on it. We, you know, right. when we get into the ketogenic space, we have people that think fat is, you got to just keep pounding fat. And I, I think that's a little bit problematic for people. And I think a lot of people end up not losing weight or gaining weight because of I, that. And I think we have to realize that, you know, we need enough fat, but we don't need to just gorge on it constantly. And our body can kind of tell you and that, that whole thing with the fat cycling. I've done that myself. And we had uh, Joe Binley on a while ago, bodybuilder, talking about the same thing. And basically it's, you know, eat lean for three, four, five days and then, and then yeah. throw some fat back in there. It's the same thing as carb cycling. It's maybe, yeah. maybe the carb cycling is really energy cycling. And it's just, yeah. you know, I'm going from a relatively low energy period of time to a higher. And, and I think that's maybe as simple as it is. And I found that as well. I find that I can go when I want to make the effort. A lot of times I don't care. I'm happy to sit, you know, a higher body in, fat, a, in, a, yes. in a reasonably good level of body composition not worry about the the uh you know i need to get down to eight percent body fat or whatever yeah. i think you know you talk about right now most people are, are battling um the modern environment you know they're battling the junk food that's around us the social conditioning the pressure this the marketing the you know the the just the, the constant influx to crappy snack food and most of it's carbohydrate based and that's that's a battle and so i think eating a you know, a meat-based diet with enough fat in there is going to, is this going to, is, is going to win the game. I mean, you're, yeah. that's just going to help you battle it. But then when you start talking, Hey, I want to, for whatever reason, for vanity or whatever reasons, want to now get down to some extremely low level of body fat. Now you're fighting against evolution and biology and then yeah. that becomes, and that becomes a different story. And then you have to do things that are not, uh, not fun, not necessarily human, normal physiology. And I think, you know, I think most people that get down to these low levels of body fat, will tell you they don't generally feel that good or at least not for a long period of time. And so There's it's kind of like consequences, like a hundred percent. Right. So, so you get back to this, you know, maybe you sit at, you know, 10, 15, oh, 14, 13% yeah. and life is good and you can eat what you want and you're satisfied. And I think that's, that's where I, that's where I prefer to spend, to spend the majority of my time. I know I perform well, yep. I function well, everything's working well, my hormones are good um, and, and life is good. And, you yep. know, and like I said, sometimes you, you kind of like, hey, just for, for vanity reasons, I want to I want to I want to get a little leaner. But but really, at the end of the day, I don't know that it's providing any huge health benefit. You know? oh, I, mean, I, somebody, I think more it probably is causing health detriments, if, if anything. Uh, but but yeah, I, I agree. Most people you're going to the thing is, most people contact me. And they're like, I want to look like this. And I'm like, well, that's totally doable. We can get there. Uh, but that's probably not where you would naturally settle. Uh, so there, so this is a strategy you could use to get there. That strategy comes with pitfalls, hunger, things like that. Uh, to play devil's advocate on just one aspect of that is, uh, cause people seem to always be concerned about, uh, longevity. And there are, I, I've looked into this area quite a bit and there's so many factors that come into longevity. Uh, undoubtedly your nutrition is one of them. Uh, and one thing we see semi-consistently in studies is that you know caloric restriction is associated with longevity it's maybe not associated with high quality of life i can tell you that but uh we see we see certain 
animal studies, there's human studies and, and things like that where, uh, you know, some, some caloric restriction, fasting, for example, uh, can perhaps aid in longevity if someone's uh, trying to live as long as they possibly can. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of Human Performance Outliers is brought to you by Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. Kettle and Fire has taken it upon themselves to create a broth as high quality as if you made it from scratch from home, but without the long hours of slow cooking it yourself. I've personally been drinking bone broth since I first read about it back in 2012, but when Kettle and Fire first started making their broth, I became an instant fan. It has all the benefits of my made-from-scratch version, but without the 24-hour slow-cooking process. The bones they use always come from organic, grass-fed sources. I'll drink it straight out of the carton or use it to slow-cook a roast. If interested in more potential health benefits of bone broth, check out chriscresser.com forward slash the bountiful benefits of bone broth, a comprehensive guide. If you like what you see, check out Kettle and Fire and let us know how you used your broth. For 15% off, head over to kettleandfire.com forward slash Zach. That's K-E-T-T-L-E-A-N-D-F-I-R-E dot C-O-M forward slash Z-A-C-H for 15% off. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I mean, that's, we had uh, Professor Keith Barr on a while back, you know, and, and we talked, and he, he does some research regarding longevity, and he was talking about different strategies. And certainly there's the caloric restriction, which in, which in many animals, particularly like mice, yeah. has shown a benefit. You know, even I think there's even, it might have even been some primate studies where that shows that's the case. But, you know, and then there's a the concern about, you know, activation of mTOR. But he also points out that in the absence of, caloric restriction or, or, or in, in a situation where you're getting higher protein, if you then couple that to uh, resistance training, the, the, the same effect seems to occur. So, I mean, there's, there's maybe yeah. two strategies. You can calorically restrict and kind of kind of limp along fairly frail into a long life, or you can uh, eat a little more, have a little more protein, and then resistance train, and then also have a long lifespan, and then perhaps be a little more functional. And so, yeah. You know, my, 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 my bias is, yeah, I want to be able to do stuff. I don't care if I live to hundred, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm sitting in there watching TV and watching life go by, I want to, I want to be out there moving and being active and being able to still participate in life. Yeah. My bias is look, I want to feel the best today. I would like to have that feeling be as, go as long as possible. But I think there's a lot of people, uh, I'm not just like to pick on certain diets, but you know, uh, certain people that are like, I'm going to do a very strict plant-based diet. And although I'm not going to feel good, as good as I could, it might add five years to my life. I'm like, even if I knew, like, if, you're, if your quality of life is at, let's say, a 7 out of 10, what is five extra years at the end of that, uh, even, if, even if it did, which I don't think there's any evidence to say that it would cause five, maybe just the opposite. Uh, but yeah, to me, it's a, it's a strange it's a strange sacrifice to sacrifice feeling good your whole life to get an extra five <laughs> five years or whatever. Well, and I mean, I think that also ignores the, the side of the longevity debate where just living a happy, fulfilled life can increase your longevity. Like if you're miserable all the time, you're, right, you know, yeah. you're tired here just because you have no reason to really feel like you want to be around any longer. Whereas if you're really excited and optimistic about things, there's, you know, there's that side of the debate as well. 
Yeah, and, and that's probably even more substantial than uh, than we realized. I saw something recently where like the number one factor for longevity was the quality of your relationships and your purpose towards your work. It's like those are, don't really have anything to do with your nutrition. So if your if your nutrition is causing you to suffer every day, and you know, might as well get the things that move the needle and feel good. Yeah, there's a there's a and I included this in my book. There's a uh, thing that life insurance actuaries put together. The factors actually predict life expectancy, yeah. and, and much of them are you know wealth, genetics, yeah. you know, male or female, you know where you know where you there where you live, you know social support. All of these things have a significant role, and nutrition's in there, but it's only one of about ten factors, and it's certainly not the major one. So when we look at these longevity studies and people claiming well, these people ate this and that and they left, live this long, well, it's like okay, that's one, yeah, numerous factors, and so and it, it's really missing out on one of the things where we can extend life quite a lot of years, where that life is very. I mean, my my grandma's a good example; she's in her mid nineties, but the last decade of her life has been she's had you know severe dementia, so it's like from a longevity standpoint, 95 years, like that's a long time, but you know, what's the actual longevity of that life? Yeah. I mean, my same thing, both my grandparents died at 94 and my grandmother was demented the last 10 years of her life. And grandfather yeah. was still, was still with it. You know, and he was a, he was kind of fun. He was a great athlete. You know, he was a golden gloves champion boxer fought, you know, undercard with Joe, Joe Lewis, Max. Oh, wow. You know, he's a scratch golfer, pro baseball player. You know, it's a great athlete, and he was a you know he's a welder, he's a hardworking guy his whole life, and you know he made it to ninety five, and he was sharp as a tack, and then he just died of a heart attack, you know, at ninety five, which is I think, uh, that's how I, if it was me, that's how I'd want to go. You know, it's one of these things is everybody's like, well, heart disease is the number one killer. I'm like, well, that's fine, sure, um, but how would you rather die? I mean, when you ask these people that you like, well, would you rather have cancer? Would you rather have dementia? Would you rather have some, uh, you know? Suicide. I mean, what are you know, depressed? Suicidal depression. What are your, what are your options here? We're all going to die of something at some point. And if it's me, you know, hell, heart attack at ninety-five. Good, I'm done. That works. That works great for me. So I mean, I think this, this, this sort of uh, myopic, slow death on heart disease. Yeah, and granted, yeah, most people die of this, but guess what? Everybody dies of regardless of their diet. This is yep. the the number one killer. And and you know, you're you're going to get something that's going to happen. So I think it, again, it, it comes to quality of life, quality of function today and what's, what's going to get you there. And, and this, you know, what am I going to die of when I'm 70 or 80 or 90 is, is really not that important, quite honestly. Yeah. Kevin, what, um, you know, I, I want to get back a little more to the dental stuff because we, well, we got you on here. Do yeah. you find that, um, are you seeing dramatic, is it possible to dramatically change the health of your of your your dental health, your oral health, with diet, and then how long does it happen? And what, what what's been the best strategy for you and the patients? That I assume you've had some patients that have actually listened to you and <laughs> what things have you seen as possible? So I mean, one of the one of the good things about dentistry is not a lot has changed in the last seventy five years. Some of the materials and whatnot. But we basically have known, like, look, there's there's two things that move the needle, your nutrition and your oral hygiene. Uh, and so if you take care of the nutrition, which that's the hard one, like getting someone to change their diet that doesn't want to change their diet, that's, uh, as, as Zach was talking about, that's kind of, that, that can be a very big uphill battle. And, you know, 
just eating one less dessert a day, a lot of times that's not enough to move the needle, you know, because you're still eating, like we talked about, like you probably have 70% of your diet, some kind of plant-based food that has carbohydrate in it. Uh, and so what's more successful is if you could tell people like, look, you spend five minutes a day, two minutes in the morning, brushing your teeth, two minutes in the evening, brush your teeth, a minute flossing every night, like that'll move the needle because you're keeping your mouth clean. Uh, you're getting, you're getting the sugar. As we tell the kids, you're getting the sugar bugs off, off your teeth. Uh, and, and so, I mean, but the thing is, it's not like this only works for some people. This works for everyone. Like if you do, if you don't eat sugar and carbohydrates or you, and, or you take good care of your oral hygiene, like you're not going to have, you're not going to have dental problems. It's not like, uh, maybe, maybe it'll help. There is like everything, a small genetic component, but as I, as I think you guys know, like humans are far more genet genetically similar than we are different. Even among different species, we're far more similar than, uh, than different. And so, I mean, those two strategies, like it, it works. So it's not like a mystery of, uh, if, if they follow, if they follow the, the two steps, then, then they'll have success. If they don't, then they'll have varying levels of non-success. Do you find that, um, oh, this is another question that I, that I often see. People are worried about uh, fillings, like mercury amalgams and stuff like that. Are you, are you finding that they're, what's the story on that? Because if people think you need to get them pulled out, what, do you, what are your yeah. thoughts on, is that really a problem or is it, is it overblown or is there something to that? So I think probably the very unsatisfying answer, a little bit of both. I think it's overblown for the people that, that worry about it. Uh, but I think that I don't think it's a non-issue. For example, I have one amalgam filling that I got when I was a kid. Uh, no, I did not have it replaced. Uh, they do amalgam filling that is well placed. You know, we it, that has more longevity than what's a composite filling, which is basically your other option. Uh, and so, is there worry about it leaking? Sure, there's a potential for some little amount of leak. And I mean, this is this could take me down a dovetail, which we could talk about. Uh, but I'll stay focused for the for the time being. Uh, if uh, if I was gonna have it redone, I, I'd probably put a composite in it, uh, just because it's more it, it's more aesthetic. There's still risks that come with composite. You know, you get you have other you have other chemical risk with composite that's not mercury, which is an amalgam. Uh, so, you know, you're always a weighing, you know, risk benefit analysis. Uh, so the risk of not doing anything is, you know, your tooth is going to rot out and you're going to lose a tooth. Uh, so you, okay. So you go with the filling, you're going to go with amalgam, you're going to go with composite. Well, this one has a little bit of risk, the amalgam, uh, you know, a little bit of mercury. It's minuscule. There's no substantial data that's going to support that's going to, you know, negatively, impact your current short-term health or long-term health not saying it's not possible but and then you have the other material which you know there's even less research on uh which could also have things that, uh, like bpa uh that could that could cause issues so you know it's to me there might be some issues sure uh the one choice versus the other i don't know like if you have one amalgam i could i'll probably have this amalgam the rest of my life uh whereas if it was a composite filling you know those lifespans you know, I think it's the average around five, 10 years, depending on how well it's placed. Uh, but you're gonna have, you're gonna have that replaced more, which, you know, exposes you to more potential risk. So I think, I think the issue is more overblown. Most practices, dental practices are moving away from amalgam. Uh, 
that's the silver fillings with mercury. Uh, you know, so if I had a choice, I'd probably go with composite, but I'm not getting amalgam removed to put a composite in there. Uh, so that's kind of how I feel about that. The, the little tangent I was going to go on, this is what I talk about a lot with regards to plants and nutrition is look, I, if, if you have a healthy gut and a healthy immune system and a healthy body, if I get a little bit of, uh, some, let's just say sugar, whatever, some plant toxin, some phytochemical that is disagreeable. You know, my gut is healthy and designed in a way that it can likely deal with this without a big issue. Now, if I have, you know, intestinal permeability and, and all these gut problems, then I put some up, some damaging food in my mouth, that is likely going to cause more issues. And so it's just a long way of saying like, Look, if you're overall healthy, the body is very adaptable and it's very good at, at dealing with toxins, uh, as long as you're just not constantly overloading it with toxins. And so that's kind of how I feel about this uh, with nutrition, especially, uh, but with fillings as well. It's like, look, if you, if, if there's a, a something minor, very minor going on, your body could probably handle it all right, where it's not going to end up killing you. Kevin, um Along kind of those same lines, if we go past just like a general filling and move kind of like down the path of a, of a bigger issue, I guess we get into like full tooth extraction. I kind of have, a, I guess, more or less a two-part question related to that. One is, uh, um, what is there, like I heard, I had a dentist tell me once that there's like, a, when you get into that scenario, you're putting in like a fake tooth essentially, which is embedded into that, that bone along your jaw. And you're kind of missing that nerve ending root connection that would be there with a natural tooth and your body actually communicates through that. So that's obviously not ideal, but maybe better than the alternative. And then I guess the other scenario where if you had a tooth extracted and just didn't get anything placed, you have that kind of bare area in your mouth and that, that bone I was told that that bone actually over time, if there's nothing there, there's no communication between the rest of the body and that spot and that bone will actually kind of seep in yeah. and that can cause your other teeth to, to go kind of crooked. Is, is any or all of what I just said make any sense? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's right on. Yeah, you're, you're right on. So if you get a tooth taken out and you opt for a dental implant, you know, basically a piece of titanium that they're going to screw into your jaw uh, and that holds the crown of the tooth, yeah, so that, that titanium is just buried into the bone, and now it's not, so you lose a basically proprioceptive feeling uh, when you when you eat, which most people get used to, so it's not a big deal. Uh, but if you get that tooth pulled and you don't put it, and, and on you know to segue with that, the bone that'll keep the bone from resorbing because the bone kind of latches on. But if you pull a tooth out and you don't don't replace it with a filling, uh, you don't replace it with an implant. Uh, yeah, the bone tends to resorb. The other thing is when you have that gap, the way your teeth come together, uh, that can change. Like you mentioned, the teeth, the teeth will shift. So if you don't have a tooth holding its position, the teeth in the back will tend to shift forward and that can change your bite, uh, the way the teeth fit together. Now, again, that, that's not something, it, it can be inconvenient. Uh, it's not something that's gonna, you know, end in, end in death or some, some serious negative consequences. Uh, but I mean, if you, if you're missing a tooth, if you look on the flip side, uh, it's easier to keep the, the, those teeth clean. So people that don't floss, when you floss, people don't realize this. You're cleaning the insides of your teeth where the teeth touch together, the contacts of your teeth. And if you're missing a tooth, you know, you obviously don't have those contacts, so it's easier to clean. Uh, we see this issue a lot with third molars that 
and those wisdom teeth that, that get semi-erupted but not fully erupted into the mouth, they cause a, compact, a compaction issue where it's hard to clean and you get people get decay there. Uh, so that you know, that's another reason why wisdom teeth are taken out. Uh, but yeah, just uh, to answer your question, you know, you're right on the money. Both those things do happen. That's interesting. And just want to follow a question with wisdom teeth too. Like if you are talking to someone who has their wisdom teeth, but don't notice any like pain or anything like that, is it, is that, is, I guess maybe I should rephrase that. Like, is there a way for a person to kind of have an idea if they should get wisdom teeth or consider getting their wisdom teeth taking out without actually going into a dentist and having them examine that? Or is that something where you just have to get in there, look at the anatomy of your own specific kind of bone or tooth structure and then decide if it's going to cause disruption or not? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend someone without like some training trying to make that decision on their own because, you know, x-rays are going to play a part in that decision. Uh, So, yeah, I I will say this about it. Uh, We live in a society where it's become very much the cultural norm just to get your wisdom teeth taken out and more people get them taken out that don't need to, uh, than probably should. And because there is risk associated with taking out wisdom teeth, especially if they're impacted and they gotta go dig for them and things like that. So I, I, I think we are a little bit, you know, if you go to an oral surgeon and he looks at your third molar, it's kind of like to a hand, to a, you know, the nail hammer, it's every, you know, nail, <laughs> Hammer looks like a nail, whatever that saying goes. You know, if you go to an oral surgeon, he looks at your third molars in there, it's questionable. Well, he's just going to take them out. That's what he's trained to do. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I do think we, we take out a little bit more third molars than need to be taken out, but that's that. I, I would still just rely on your dentist to, to kind of guide you through that one. Kevin, what... Um you know, I, I'm just kind of curious back to your sort of carnivorous experimentation. You know, like I said, you, 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 so what did you, your conclusion was, um, you know, just eating, eating kind of steaks works pretty well and, and the other stuff doesn't make that much of a difference or have you found that there's something, well, let's talk about some of the things that, that are outside of eating. There's electrolytes seem to be a common topic. You know, I like to keep as many opinions on this as possible. I know there's a lot of yeah, sort of different differential t- thoughts on this um you know and and any other sort of things outside of just you know what's on the menu are there some other things out there that you've employed that you found have been been helpful with regard to uh is that i've experimented with with some things uh and one was electrolytes and i think it's it's, if people are interested i wrote a little 30-day guide to transition because i feel like 30 days some people start on an all meat diet and just have success right out of the gate. But I don't think that's the rule. I think that might be more of the exception. Because uh, people have heard of the, the keto flu. There is a carnivore flu. And I think one of the one thing that can help the carnivore flu is some electrolyte supplementation. I think the biggest thing is just being a little bit overly aggressive with salt uh, as the, the main electrolyte uh, early on. But you know, some magnesium, maybe some potassium can help bridge the transition. I think Long term, I, I, I don't think, not only are they not needed, I think they might be a hindrance. Uh, I supplemented with some, resupplemented with some during the summer when I was doing a, a little bit of a carnivore cut, I'll call it, uh, where I was sweating a little bit more. I was doing cardio, uh, which is rare for me. I don't like doing a lot of, a lot of, a lot of cardio. Uh, 
But uh, I took some electrolytes and man, I did not feel good. It made me feel worse. It's like, uh, and I think it might've been the potassium in it would, would have been my guess that had a little bit more potassium in it than I was wanting in it. Uh, but on the flip side, it's hard to buy real pure electrolyte supplements. Like if you go searching for them, there's like only a couple brands out there that's not going to give you everything under the moon and involved in that supplement. Like I didn't want all that other junk in it. Like I just want, you know, some, some sodium, some magnesium, maybe a little potassium. Uh, so one, it's hard to find a clean source of electrolytes. And if you do, uh, maybe it'll help during the transition. But, you know, I think weaning off them is what I recommend most people. Just, you know, wean off them, see how you do. That's how I feel about those. I did, I tried uh, uh, collagen supplementation. People uh, recommend collagen because it's high in glycine. And, you know, meat, muscle meat tends to be high in methionine. And that causes some people concerns. Uh, so I, I, I tried supplementing with, with some collagen and like with a lot of things, nothing noticeably bad, but nothing noticeably good. Uh, it's one of those things where you don't, you don't know, you know, like how, how do you, how do you, how do you know? Uh, so I don't, I mean, I don't supplement with that any regular, with any regularity. Whey protein is the one inch, uh, interesting supplement that I'll talk about because especially from a lot of people that with body composition goals and muscle building. Uh, I think whey protein can have some pros when it comes to building muscle, but I think it definitely comes with cons, uh, because I notice if I take whey protein by itself, uh, I won't feel good. I think I go, I think I go slightly hypoglycemic because it's quite insulinogenic. And, uh, I think that without an accompanying, like kind of slow protein or something else, uh, it makes me not feel good. Uh, and and other people I think have, have, uh, experienced the same. Now, some people will be like, well, that insulin response might be helpful when it comes to building muscle, and maybe it is, maybe it's not. I don't think that's conclusive at all. Uh, but I know a lot of people are like, what about whey protein supplement? And so that's one. I'm like, I think most people are better without it. Uh, you can experiment with it, but it also tends to come with a lot of junk in it, too. There's pure brands out there where you can get real clean whey protein, but, but you got you to gotta look for those. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing, you know, again, we see with every single dietary scheme out there, there's always the opportunists that, that want to sell a supplement for it, right? <laughs> so I think that you know, this whole, like, if we look at, you know, collagen consumption, I would argue that the U.S. diet in general is probably lacking in collagen. So if you're on the standard American diet, yeah, maybe taking a collagen supplement might make benefits. Same thing with all kinds of supplements. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Diet is this garbage. But if you're eating a, a diet, even a muscle meat diet, we look at, you know, if you look at muscle, I mean, 3% of that, the actual muscle tissue is collagen. So you're already well above the, the you know, if, if that's all your diet is, you're already well above the U.S. national average. And now, if you happen to eat steak and you eat some of the fascia, the connective stuff, and if anybody who's looked at a steak, you know, those little separations between the little... right. Meat is collagen. That's pure collagen. And so you're actually getting quite a bit more as far as the methionine glycine stuff goes. Just go look up a cut of steak. There is far more glycine than there is methionine already. I mean, it's on a grand parameter raise, there's far more glycine in there. And so it's not like you're not getting glycine. Now, there's some people say that the optimal ratio is skewed so, so much farther that glycine should be 20 times what your methionine intake is. And that's, again, this has to do with when we're assuming rat studies extrapolating to humans, I think that's a big leap to make. And I think there's a lot of that, that's a lot to sell 
you know, uh, you know, someone taking a supplement on just based on a rat study, and that's where that data is coming from. And then also something that research I found that was interesting is that when I looked at this, because I was because I, I got in a conversation with Paul Saladino on this, and he's a big proponent of you know right. and glycine and all that stuff. And I and I said, look, look, Paul, there's studies out there that show when humans are not ingesting glucose or galactose, which is milk sugar, um, you know, part of lactose. When, when that's not in the diet, then the glycine absorption is much higher. And so it may be the fact that if you just eat steak without the sugar, you know, the normal carbohydrate, the glucose, then you're absorbing more glycine anyway. So it may become another non-issue. And so it's, again, but your very point is I took the stuff and it made no difference. And, and, and that's kind of what I think we have to kind of look at. And it's like, for me, for a supplement to be worth it, there needs to be a significant obje objective reproducible benefit otherwise it's a waste of money it's placebo effect and you're wasting your cash and so i don't get too excited about pouring sprinkling collagen on my steaks or sprinkling bone meal or getting you know x amount of liver each week i just think there's not any really compelling human experiential data that that, that compels me to say yeah you need to do this is it going to be harmful probably not is it going to maybe cut into your steak budget probably so <laughs> where do you want to where do you want to spend your money? And I think that's, it's fun to experiment with, and I'm all for people doing it. I don't tell people not to do it, but I, but I think at the same time, you need to have an objective, verifiable result that, that makes you want to do that. Otherwise, it's a waste. Because I cannot tell it's you. It's hard to verify. I mean, I've been lifting weights and training for 40 years, and I, I mean, I've seen so many supplements and products come wow. out. And the ones that tended to work were, were, were often illegal, and the ones that were, you know, you know, like the steroids and stuff like that. But the ones on the market that have actually shown actual efficacy long-term have been things like protein, have been things like... And uh, the, creatine. The, yeah, the two, the two that you're going to get with your meat. Creatine right. has been shown to be... And like if you're eating a meat-based diet, you're basically maxing out creatine stores anyways. I could, I, and I did experiment with that a little bit. I was like, okay, let's add creatine back in. And usually... If your creatine stores aren't saturated, you'll gain, you'll hold a little bit more water. Usually it's noticeable on the scale. I didn't gain an ounce. I didn't, weights didn't go up in the gym, nothing like beta alanine. But you, you, I mean, with meat, you're getting, you're, you're more than, you're more than getting all you need. So it's like the few supplements that I, if someone had asked me five years ago, what should you take? Uh, with a meat based diet, like you're already getting it all. The only other thing uh, would be like, uh, a DHA, EPA, whether it's cod, cod liver oil or whatever, krill oil. Uh, but like with meat-based diet, again, I wouldn't take that. I mean, this is more for people on a plant-based diet. I'd be like, you should probably take creatine, beta alanine. You might get some help, some fish oils. You might get some help, protein supplement. But like like you said, like these are the things that you're, you're getting in a meat-based diet. Yeah, I mean, the only exception that I think for some people would be caffeine. And, and a caffeine has its pros and cons. And so... I never liked coffee. I never drank it. And so for, for a short period of time, I experimented with taking a caffeine tablet, you know, while yeah. I was on a carnivore diet. And honestly, I, I, I couldn't say the benefit was, was very significant at all. And I ended up dropping it. You know, I went on this, we did this, you know, back in 2017, we did this carnivore diet sort of study, so to speak. And, and for that period of time, I dropped all the caffeine and really nothing bad happened to my performance. And I just never re reintroduced it. So I, I, you know, like for me, it's, you know, it's meat and then water and, and, you know, like I put a little salt in there for exercise, but that, that's been the extent of my supplementation. And I think that for me has resulted in arguably very good performance, you know, yeah. given, given what I've been able to do and you know, particularly at my age. So, 
yeah, I'm not, ex- I'm not, I'm not, like I said, I, I, I am very skeptical. I mean, you know, even though I'm on a crazy out there, you know, diet, I'm still very skeptical about a lot of things, you know, particularly when it comes to supplements, because I think there's, there's a lot more hype and a lot more money that, that gets made than, than people that actually get benefit. Yeah. And, and there are some risks with, with supplements too, that I think people ignore, like I was talking about vitamin D the other day and there's research. It's like, look, if you're taking a vitamin D supplement, you probably need to be taking uh, a K2 supplement as well. But people don't, that, that's through, you know, they, it's hard. You're, so you're trying to balance all these things with supplementation, which it's like, look, you're not going to, you're not going to do this right. You need a whole food piece of meat in order to get, you know, the balance that your body actually needs. Uh, and so, yeah, for most people, I, I, I say look, supplements, if there's any benefit, it's going to be negligible, not non-noticeable. If there's downfalls, that they're, 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 they're there. So, and people ask me that about coffee. That's a common question. And I've taken coffee in and out. Uh, and when I have coffee, I think what's important is like, I, when I drink coffee, I'm not drinking it because I'm going to try and convince myself that it's some health food because of the polyphenols or whatever. Like, <laughs> when I drink coffee, I'm like, look, if I'm doing this, it's just because I want to drink a cup of coffee. And if, Anything that's net neutral or net negative, uh, but I'm not going to act like I'm getting healthy because I'm drinking coffee. <laughs> yeah, you know the interesting thing I think about supplements in general is like when you really look at just how things compete with absorption, you almost I think to, you almost need to know like am I deficient in something? And then if you get into that window, we kind of go back to how we started all this conversation where you know are we addressing the root of the problem or are we trying to put a bandaid on top of something that is, is there because of a lifestyle we're living that we don't want to give up. And, you know, so maybe something like, you know, some of these supplements would be more beneficial if you're following a diet that is not going to give you the the nutrients you need to kind of survive. And in which case then, yeah, you probably should take a supplement if you're going to hold firm on that, that, but then if you're going to do, you know, us three would consider a human appropriate diet. There's probably less need for it or possibly less need within normal context of the average person's lifestyle. That's exactly how I, exactly how I think about supplements is like, it's a band aid to a hole that you have somewhere. So I think it's better to take care of the hole. Uh, if you can't, then maybe supplement makes sense. Uh, and that's why I was talking about vitamin D because you know, we live in a modern society where we spend all day indoors and we're probably not getting the sunlight that we, you know, that we should, uh, that would be optimal for our health. And so is that reason to take a vitamin D supplement? Maybe, maybe not. And that, you know, that's a rabbit hole. Uh, but the, the word of caution that I was telling people, I was like, it's easier to go out and get some sun than it is to try and take a vitamin D supplement for the right dosage and then balance it with what else that vitamin D supplement needs, uh, than just to get at the root cause of the issue. Awesome. Well, Kevin, um, do you have anything else you wanted to chat about or Sean, do you have any other questions or anything? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think, I'm sure there's a few other things that, that, that we could chat about. I'm just trying to think I, I've got to go run and do another podcast in 10 minutes. So, so unfortunately we'll knock it down. Maybe we'll get Kevin back on for a second round here in the near future. Kevin, thank you so much. Tell everybody where to find you. I know you've got good information on, you know, diet in general, carnivore diet. People use you as a resource. Um, tell us where, where to find you with that stuff, and then uh, uh, we'll wrap that up. Yeah, I do, I do a lot of writing, a lot of research. And probably the easiest thing is I, I send out a weekly newsletter and all my newest stuff there. So it's just at, 
you know, kevinstock.io or uh, meet.health. Those are the two places. Perfect. Thank you so much, Kevin. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's fun. Yeah, Kevin, thanks again for coming on the show. And I'll link those uh, those links to the show notes for our listeners so they can head over and check out what you're up to. Um, otherwise, we'll look forward to having you on down the road again. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.